So I was always interested in this future possibility. And I think it's inherently who I am, but it took me a long time to align. I think most of our journey in our life is to figure out who we are or find, get more comfortable with who we are or accept who we are. And I think that's that's part of it. It's actually inherent as opposed to something that I've consciously thought I'm going to focus on the future. I never consciously thought that. It was not part of my agenda. Dr. Morgan Gay's path to becoming a leading thinker in food futurology was anything but predictable. As an only child with a partying butcher for a mother, an expat bodybuilding construction worker for a father, she grew up in a home with little money, love, attention or direction. Self-parenting was her only option as she immersed herself in art, books and a fantasy world. Leaving school at 16, she travelled to the Middle East, spent a year at university in Wisconsin and by 19 was working as a weather girl on Hong Kong television. She discusses drifting through life until finding herself in the game-changing spiritual community at Findhorn in Scotland and how serendipity led her to discover quantum philosophy and starting her PhD. Upon discovering that she'd always been seeking connection, she was drawn to the universal connector, food. Morgan breaks down why she focuses on the future of food and we cover how we first met in London in 2007 while working on the development of her raw chocolate bar, Edible Beauty. Morgan explains the disruptive decade that we've all been living through and why we're moving from a phase of having to the phase of knowing and the seminal shifts that will occur in society as we become more nature-focused on an eco-future of biophilia, rewilding, as we experience the rise of hyper-local communities. Morgan also discusses her experience of suffering from the COVID-19 virus and losing her sense of smell, what has been, up until now, her superpower. We discuss her principles, her hard choices, how 9-11 led her to launch her own brand of superfood, her perspectives on diets, DNA and genetics. I hope you enjoy the artistry, vision and philosophy of Dr. Morgan Gay. I should say that although we only launched the Impossible Network in January of 2019, we did actually record quite a few episodes back as early as 2015. Morgan was one of the first guests when we did those recordings and published them on Vimeo. So if you do actually want to go back and Google her interview from 2015, you'll find it on Vimeo. Just search for The Impossible Network and you should find it. Morgan. Hello. Welcome to The Impossible Network. How wonderful, again. Again, yeah. We uh, When we first started The Impossible Network way back in 2015, and didn't do anything with it. We interviewed you in Neuhaus. Can you believe it? I Five years ago. I remember that very well. Crazy. All that time. So finally, this one will be published and will go out. So yeah. But different plan. You're in, you're in London at the moment. I am in London, rainy London. We've had an amazing month of sunshine and blissful weather, which is extraordinary, actually unprecedented in our history, it turns out. And um, we're back to the good old British summer. <laughs> that we all recognise so well. And it looks like our New York sweaty, humid summer is just starting. Yeah. So, right. Well, let's crack on because I know you're on a, uh, we've got a time limit. Yeah. So, food futurologist, uh, interesting journey to that uh, food futurology focus and, and consulting with businesses, with governments and uh, broadcasters. But I'd like to start with your childhood and the influence of your parents on your journey, um, their guidance, the direction they set you on. Um, I believe you grew up in in, uh, not-so-sunny Yorkshire. Well, a little bit. um, We moved there when I was about seven, and I left when I was 16. Mm. So, yeah, chunk of time. And because I didn't talk like that... I didn't have an accent, so I didn't fit in so well, I suppose. And I never really got a full, the full Yorkshire twang. But yes, I grew up there and probably quite a small town, I would say. But my father left when I was 11, 12, and he went to live in the Middle East. So I was shuttled between Yorkshire village, sort of very small village, and then the Middle East in wow. uh, Abu Dhabi and then Bahrain, which were not on the map at that point. Uh-huh. And your mother? So my mum my mum was originally from Lancashire. She was a butcher. And so I lived with my mum, one parent family, no brothers and sisters, just me. Ah, so what did your father do in the Middle East? He was setting up setting up a big, big companies to do sort of scaffolding on scaffolding maintenance on oil refineries. That's oh, wow. about as much as I know, to be honest. So 
where did the interest, was there an early interest in food coming from your butcher mother? I don't know if there was an early interest, but I think there was a, at the time, I mean, I had no interest in food at all, but looking back, I can see all the influences. My father was a bodybuilder and a powerlifter and used to have lots of bulking type shakes and things and also used to eat baby food. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of tension, I think, around mealtimes at home, which I didn't like. Lots of foods I didn't like. So the food that my mum served as a butcher was mostly meat-based. It was meat for every meal. And I didn't like meat. So there's a lot of tension around mealtimes. And as I got older, I remember we did cooking at school until I was 16 and I hated it. So really, there was not really an interest in, I didn't want to be a chef. I definitely didn't want to work in food or catering or anything like that. And the only thing that really was the food element was about the mental part of my friends spending their pocket money on sweets. And I had this sort of weird psychology that I used to say to them, don't spend that money on sweets because when you've eaten those sweets, it will just be a moment, then it's gone. And you could just sort of condense that moment And then those sweets, you'll have eaten them, but you could just still have the money. So just forget eating the sweets and then you've got the money. So I I don't know, it sounds absolute nonsense now, but it seemed like really good psychology at the time. What was it like as a only child in terms of developing your sense of self, your self-belief, your character? What were the main influences on you growing up? I think that I didn't have a typical childhood at all. I think it's pretty rare. My mum was busy with herself. And she was working. We were very poor, extremely poor. And so she was working as a butcher. And then when she wasn't working as a butcher, she was out drinking and having a good time. Mm -hmm. And so when I was going to school, sometimes she was coming home from having a good time. And I was self-parenting myself from very young. And I began flying to the Middle East on my own at 11. And my dad was I think very concerned about having a daughter in the Middle East and he didn't really know what to do with a child and he's not particularly, he just wasn't very able to do things with me. So he, and he continued working and he was afraid for me. So he just locked me in the flat uh, for the times he was at work. So I didn't really have any parenting from either parent. Neither of them were educated. I don't, I think my dad's only read two books now until now. And there was just no, there was no stimulus in either home. Where did your stimulus come from? This is pre-internet, of course. <laughs> you didn't, you couldn't exactly. I was very bored as a child. And I remember asking for extra work from school and extra homework. And I amused myself a lot as an only child. And I did art and art was my thing. Art, writing poetry, making artwork. And I look back at the art I was creating as a probably very disturbed uh, isolated mm. eight-year-old and it's exceptional. I mean, it's ridiculous to say that now as I'm a grown-up, but I can look at that work and I was 11 or 12 years old and it's still exceptional. It's, you know, it doesn't look like a child's work. It's, it's better than I could do now because I had so much focus and intent and just boredom. So mm. I was the detail and the nuance of you know, doing biro pen drawings of, I don't know, you know, all sorts of things. Mm. So I spent a lot of time alone in a fantasy world or just thinking and doing stuff on my own. With a mother, if she was going out, having a good time and leaving each own devices, I mean, how did you cater for yourself and, and cook? And Oh yeah, I was quite good at that. I mean, I, you know, I was very self-sufficient very young because I had to be. So my mum is not very much, she's not maternal at all. She's not a cooking, sewing, uh, baking type of mother. She's more of a feather boa uh, drag clubs type of mother. So, you know, my friends loved coming over because they'd do what they wanted. They could smoke and drink and do whatever they liked. Uh, and I was the sort of the nerd in the duffel coat with the braids, doing doing everything I could with a satchel, you know, the, the total school nerd. Never missed a day of school. I, I hated not being at school. I wanted to be there all the time. I wanted to go to boarding school. I just, I wanted to live with other people. I just didn't want to be alone in the house on my own in my situation. So what were your um, early ambitions as you were I think the ambition that I really took for a long time was I wanted to be an architect. And of course, back then, which we had very little career advice, and the only bit of career advice I had was, oh, you have to be really good at maths, otherwise you can't do it. And I just thought, oh, well, probably not for me then. And that was the end of that ambition. It was that simple. And actually, I got what we called O-levels back then, 
in maths, which was all we needed, which was, I don't know how you, what the American equivalent of that really is, but I passed, but it wasn't, I just didn't know what to do. I had no advice at all. And the next thing was to, I was going to be an industrial designer or an artist really, because the art thing was always the thing for me. And just life just took a different turn because I didn't have any advice, didn't have any career advice or parenting to guide me and make proper decisions. So I didn't make the proper decisions. I made bad decisions and I made a catalogue of bad decisions for about 20 years. Let's talk through just some of these these bad decisions. I mean, serendipity is at the core of what we like to explore and understand what set you on the path to where you are. And we've we've been talking a lot recently with people about that old quote, life happens for you, not to you. But at the time when things aren't going in the, the, the way that you think they should be, um, you sometimes wonder where life is going. So what happened coming out of school? Where clearly you were obviously studious, you were diligent and focused. I was, I, yeah, all, I was, I was very bright at wrong? school. I was intelligent. I was top of the class and... I went from 16 years old, which we can leave the we can leave school at 16 in England, or you go on to to a further education to till you're 18, and that's what you did if you were intelligent. So I went on to do that, but I left my school and went to a different school to do that, which was a mistake number one. And then the school that I went to didn't do art. I went, to, I did drama and something and languages because I thought, well, at least if I fail, then at least I can speak some languages. And then after a year with no support, by that point, I was living alone at 16 in a different county. So that's a bit like living in a different state in the US, crossing state lines on my own as a 16-year-old to go and try and fund myself with no money. I was just, it was just got very, very difficult really quickly. And so I begged my father so I could move to the Middle East. He wasn't so keen. I moved to the Middle East, didn't work out so well, trying to self-teach myself because he didn't believe in paying for education. And then I applied for a system where I could go to high school in the States. So I went and I got, uh, I got a host family to host me. So I was 16 and a half and I ended up in Wisconsin, in a town in Wisconsin, a really small town in Wisconsin. Yorkshire to Wisconsin. You couldn't oh, think my of goodness. anything. Yeah. So from Barring to Wisconsin, uh, where it was just mostly hunting and fishing. Great when you don't like meat and you don't eat meat and you're a vegetarian and all of that stuff. And I went to high school and just thought, what the heck am I doing here? This is terrible. So I left high school very quickly and the host family, and I enrolled myself into the university at Eau Claire in Wisconsin, which is a pretty good university. So I was there and I got a bursary for a year. And so I did a year of college university credits and ended up in then different sorts of bits of American education. And then my father begged me to come back. The money, the, the, the bursary had run out, went back to the Middle East with no, really, again, no qualifications and no idea what I was going to do. Ended up with his bank manager. In a rela- I ended up in a relationship with his bank manager. Really good decisions all the way here. And who, who was then posted to Hong Kong. So I went to Hong Kong. Within a couple of weeks, I ended up getting, uh, I ended up doing a one-woman show that I sort of wrote myself. And out of that, someone came and saw that. And I ended up becoming the weather girl live on TV in front of 7 million in Hong Kong. At this point, I was 19 years old. Whoa. That's incredible. But I was fast and loose. I mean, I had no, you know, I'm not, I was never drunk in my life, even to this day, any alcohol. I've never smoked. I've never done drugs, but I was wildly making crazy decisions, just saying yes to anything that came up. So I was up to all sorts. I ended up working in an ad agency at the same time as an art director. I was 19 years old and I was getting paid like proper money. And I just, my self-esteem was so low. I just thought this can't, this is like a forgery. They're paying me to do drawings. This is crazy. I can do this in my sleep. So I managed to work my way out of that job by just sort of, you know, trying to thinking this was a bad bad thing that they could be doing to hire me and painted murals, which are still there in Hong Kong and Taipei, big murals that are all over the place to this day and doing telly, children's TV and weather reading thing. I just thought it was all a big joke, really a big laugh. And I couldn't feel anything. My whole world just felt empty because I had all of these you know, hundreds of friends because suddenly I'm Hong Kong famous, but I'm 19. So I left it all to go and live in a spiritual community in the north of Scotland. In forests. In forests. 
yeah. up in Findhorn. The famous Findhorn community. Yeah. yeah. So I went and lived up there and and then that was just wonderful and a game changer. No job, no money. Uh, again, no education still, really. And then ended up finding another boyfriend and cycling around Australia, which seemed like a really good idea at the time. Australia is a big place. I had really hadn't grasped that as we made the money to buy the bikes and we set off cycling around Australia, which was painful and long. And so I lived in Australia for a couple of years. And then from there, we both applied to university. And he went to do architecture. Painfully. And he is now an architect. (laughs) And I went off and did theatre at uh, Dartington in Devon. And once I'd got there, after five weeks, they realised I had some university credits. So they fast-tracked me into the second year. So I did my degree in two years. And I left university there. We did a theatre degree. But there was actually, I didn't do any acting. There was no play reading. It wasn't that kind of thing. It was devised making work. And um, I came out of that and thought, what the heck am I going to do? I just had still no idea. So I read that you did a course or a master's in quantum philosophy. I did a PhD in that. A PhD. I heard you did your PhD, because you are Dr. Morgan Gay, in quantum philosophy. Now... We've, we've interviewed quantum physicists, who um, Mara Moore, who's a, worked in quantum optics, but quantum philosophy. Can you explain to people like myself that don't know what quantum philosophy is? Well, after getting completely lost after my degree, I thought, now what am I going to do? And it wasn't, it was about a year or so later, I went on a, I, w- I actually went to a lecture by uh, someone who's recently passed away called Keith Critchlow. And he was looking at geometric patterns and he was part of the Prince of Wales School of Architecture. The architecture thing keeps coming back through. And it blew my mind. It changed my perception of the possibility of what we see in life. And when you go back to art, we actually art is not about drawing, it's about seeing. And he, and he was showing people how to see. And so that I ended up being consumed by this sort of thinking. And I did some of these studies at the Slade School of Art under him. In London. And in London. And I somehow thought I could do an MA in this or something like that. And I took these sorts of teachings and tried to do quantum physics, but obviously really didn't have a background in that at all. And thought that was a little bit difficult as I started to look into it. And the quantum philosophy became looking at a theory for the way in which the world connects in a, in a structure that is beyond what we instantly perceive. So that's what I did. And really, that was just another, another piece of education, which I came out and went, and now what am I going to do? Um, so I just think I've just had a lot of, like I said, not bad decisions, but looking back, I think I could have used my time more wisely, more condensed, more focused from very early on had I had some guidance or some clarity or some idea really. So all of what I've done, including my PhD, which really changed my life in terms of my perception, we're all just really groping around in a dark room. (laughs) So what then led you to, from that that groping around in a dark room, (laughs) to become (laughs) laser focused on food and the future of food? Yeah, it took a long time because I, one of the things that I noticed in my PhD that I started writing about food in my PhD, little bits about it, because what I was looking for all the time and my PhD showed me that I was looking for the connection. I personally, as a child, wanted to connect with other people. I wanted to make connections in my life, whether that's human or mental. And that's what I did in my PhD. And that's, and I was looking, I suppose, all the time for the connector in life. There's one thing that we all have in common and it's food. And it took me a long time to get to that. And that's when the food part really became the focus because it is the focus, but all of the other things, it touches everything, philosophy, culture, belief, religion, society. It touches mother, the womb, genetics, DNA. It just It's like this spiral forever that touches everything. And because it, you know, anything in food never exists in a vacuum, it means I get to be interested in everything. And so food is that nucleus. That's fascinating. So what aspect, when you say, I mean, it's interesting if you think about food in the spectrum of, and the way you just described it from 
from nutrition to culture to even religion it, it touches in terms of festivals and um, beliefs about what you should and shouldn't eat this shouldn't touch that so what what initial area of focus drew you to start to research more about food and food and culture and in, through history and and then focus on the future because so you could be a food consultant but you've been very focused on where we're going as a as culture as society as humans because and I think through observation even as a teenager I didn't I felt like I wasn't quite you know, I had friends. I wasn't sort of some weirdo that was didn't have friends, but I felt like I was like a step out of, just a step, a different sort of timing in my, um, how to describe it. I just, I felt slightly different. And I think the future was always interesting to me because I was thinking about, even when I talk about the, the candy and money analogy, it's about don't do this now because in a minute you'll be in the future and this is what the future will be and you'll be able to have this new future. So I was always interested in this future possibility. And I think it's inherently who I am, but it took me a long time to align. I think a, most of our journey in our life is to figure out who we are or find, get more comfortable with who we are or accept who we are. And I think that's, that's part of it. It's actually inherent as opposed to something that I've consciously thought I'm going to focus on the future. I never consciously thought that. It was not part of my agenda. Mm-hmm. I'm talking, I mean, we met through a serendipitous situation through me working at an ad agency and working with someone that you were friendly with uh, that introduced me to you. And when we were uh, first introduced, you were working on a concept uh, for a, a raw chocolate bar way before raw chocolate bars were sold for exorbitant amounts of money here in, in Brooklyn. And I don't think anyone even understood what a, a raw chocolate bar was that was going to be gluten-free, milk, uh, dairy-free, sugar-free. And that was way ahead of its time. I mean, when you sort of, uh, identify things like that, what are the cues? What are things you spot? Yeah. What leads you? I mean, and that's just looking one back early at that, ex- yeah. just that we should have done it, shouldn't we? We'd have been, we wouldn't be doing this now, would we, Bianca? <laughs> we certainly wouldn't, no. <laughs> it's a long time ago. Eat beautiful. Eat, yeah. Can you just say, sorry, can you say how long ago that was? I think it'd be interesting to get a context of when... It was 12 years. It was 2008. Morgan came in and we were developing the concept for what we were positioning it as edible beauty, an edible beauty bar. Um, you would eat in the morning and Morgan was was making the chocolate and bringing it in and we were doing research groups and focus groups on it. So looking at sourcing the cacao from South America. But yeah, it's just, um, it's amazing how, I suppose, the combination of just distractions of work and other things get in the way of a great idea. Yeah, we should have done it. I mean, it was on the money. It was definitely on the money. And I just don't think there was a belief in the agency for it, really, because no. that's that's part of the problem is that when you're talking about the future, most people are very much rooted in the present. And that happens all the time. I'd had I'd been having that idea for a few years before we even met. So it, it was already a few years you know, before we even talked about it. I don't know how I, some of the things I don't know how I just have a feeling and then I have to disprove or prove my feeling. And now because I'm consulting at a high level and people, I can't just sort of whimsically say, I just have this hunch it's going to happen. I have to be able to back that up or at least show examples of that and, and underpin what I'm saying. But even just a couple, which I think I sent to you the the clips of the talk I did over a year ago now, when I talked about people wearing masks and picture of virus under the microscope and talking about protection and people being conscious of what air they're going to be breathing and all of that stuff. Uh, that was just, a, it was over a year ago. I was saying that stuff for a couple of years. And of course, most people just thought, Nordic. oh yeah, well, whatever, one day. But I mean, you know, me. it all seems crazy because of course it does, because everybody's in the present. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, people have found, you know, companies, large brands that I work for, I talk about the future with them. But they really need to be able to tick all the boxes, prove it, have a graph. It needs to see that exponential graph of change. And the future doesn't look like that. The future doesn't isn't a linear thing. It's a it's you know there's a lot of disruptions in that pattern. And we've been thinking in a very linear way as a culture for a long time. 
And I think this actually might change that up where brands and, and companies and people might realize that whatever you've been doing up until now is just um, lucky. <laughs> mm. it's, it's not you know, that you think that you've got this big agenda and if you hold fast to that, it's always going to work and it's not true. And almost like this particular time has really shown everybody that. So given a year ago, you were looking at masks, viruses, expecting, having a sense of where the world was going. Hmm. What's your feeling looking forward now in terms of Oh, it's how been fascinating. Because you must be looking at all scenarios in a, through your great imagination as to where we could be. Well, I don't really think of it as imagination because, I mean, I can't, that's the problem, I think. I can't think about myself connected to a future because what I want to happen and what I'd like is not the same thing. I can, it's very hard to describe how I think about the future. But I was talking about this disruption phase was from 2012 until 2020. So that phase that I've been talking about for eight years has come to fruition. So I feel like we've got a lot to happen in 2020, 2021. So what I say to people is, I know that you think the, sort of the big COVID thing is the thing of 2020. It's just part of the thing of 2020. I mean, look already, we've had the fires in Australia, which has decimated, you know, you know, that's unprecedented. We've had COVID. Now we've got the net already, just before we haven't even got COVID out of the way. And now it's the biggest revolution for Black Lives Matter. And there's this, you know, revolution in every country and on the streets and a cultural change happening. And it will be the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. So that's 2021 taken care of. Then after that, we're moving into a very different time and an unprecedented time. Um, it's pretty exciting. It's really good. We are going to be thinking about our primary concerns that we have been preoccupied with as a species over the last hundreds of years have been in this concept of having. So that's having knowledge, having friends, having money, having things, having a house, having an education. It just goes on and on about the having and accumulating. And we're moving into this new phase of knowing. And this new phase of knowing will, will change just the way that we are as a species. So what happens if brands sell things that people don't want anymore? What happens when people stop wanting stuff? There'll be an epidemic of, and that's, what, that's the epidemic, there's a different epidemic we're going to go into is people stop buying a lot of stuff and wanting stuff. Then what happens to those brands? Then what happens to the economy? The whole economy is going to shift because people don't want to own things anymore. I mean, when you talk about that, that shift from owning to knowing. Having to knowing. Having, having to knowing. Um, it sounds like a, your experience, life experience at Findhorn was a, an incubator for that type of experience. Was that a fair reflection that their values were, were different to the mainstream society? God, good question. Probably, yes, I would say so. I mean, it's definitely about what we're going into now, which is much more community focused, much more about a shared collective experience so that you're sharing skills as opposed to things that, yeah, I just think there was more substance and meaning to everything so that the phrase there was love in action. So that if you were cleaning that, you know, sometimes your job was cleaning the toilets. So don't just quickly clean the toilets and get out. It's like, You've got to love doing what you're doing. You've got to really be in the moment with everything that you're doing. A sense of sort of mindfulness. And I think that that's, we're already seeing a rising that we're already seeing people, it's more yoga, more meditation. It's a type of, a, I suppose, a spiritual reawakening, but with a very different veil over the top than it would be sort of hippie or considered to be woo-woo or whatever. But let's, let's ground it. I mean, yes, we're seeing this, this huge upheaval that we're in the midst of at the moment. But we're still in a situation where we have global supply chains. We have genetically modified factory farmed animals and fish. We've got economies trying to get back on track, Asia and China, sort of going back to its old ways. There might be a, an awakening and a, and a shift in our collective consciousness, but things don't happen that quickly. So are we likely to see a let's say, a continuation of globalization, but at the same time, micro-communities emerging that start to work in a much more local, community-based collectives forming around these, these new values that you're talking about. And this is a, a, a big transformation because we all know that every country is 
driven by the immediacy, the same way you talked about agencies living in the now, needing to get back to the old way to see growth, to see scale in the economy, to get it back churning again. So there is going to be those forces pushing us back to behave the way we used to behave. But we, we, like I said, this is, we've never experienced this before. We cut, there's nobody and no thing that can go back to business as usual. They might think they can, but we'll see that fall apart and it will fall apart. It was interesting, your comment when you just said, you know, things just don't happen that quickly, but look what just happened that quickly. Things do happen that quickly. And I, like, I just, I just, it's hard to believe because we're not, we're still, even now we're not really there yet. We're never going to be there yet, but but the fact that things could just turn on a dime, things will turn on a dime. This is the time that things are going to just flip. Mm. Everything that we, you just can't believe what's already happened in terms of a global lockdown that we've just, it's just hard to even con- conceive of really. And it happened so quickly within weeks. So things will happen. But we're also looking at a different, those, of course, those companies want to make money and grow and go back to being profitable. But it's what that new profit is. And this new future is really eco-futurism. It's a different type. You know, it's not the future where people are wearing shiny suits and, you know, flying some hoverboard. It's, it's about biophilia. It's about expressing the earth and rewilding. And that will be the, the focus for humanity so that people want People will have an aspiration. People are always aspirational for the next new thing, but that will be the next new thing. It's nature focused. And that in its many iterations, which we possibly can't even really fully understand yet. But a lot of people moving out of cities, a lot more people really wanting to connect in a different way. Even with fashion, we'll see a lot of the fabric dyes will start to come from food, vegetables, fruits, plants. We'll start to see the motifs of nature. It's just going to be a big, big focus. And this idea of survival and the survival of the planet, there's just going to be a lot around that climate karma. And companies will have to, it's no longer, they won't survive if they even just paying lip service to that. We've got Gen Z coming through and they are, they are really the climate warriors. But it's, it's different. It's the eco-futurism. It's more aspirational than just sort of militant protesting. So as a resistance to the supply chain of food that we're that's being packaged and delivered to us on our supermarket shelves are you seeing evidence of new food communities and i mean we've got we're part of a csa here where we get our vegetables every month from local farms there obviously there's a, a we see it here in brooklyn and in manhattan these amazing food collectives and farmers markets that have emerge every few days where people go into the streets and buy health, more healthier food. Are you going to think, you think there will be an acceleration of that type of um, these markets and these collectives? Yeah, absolutely. And I think also we'll start to see the growing collectives. So people who are, who themselves have allotments or whatever will then realize, you know, how, how many courgettes can a person eat? So they'll meet somebody else who's growing some other thing and there'll be lots of that sort of swapping and trading. So swapping and trading, even without money, and even the idea that if you are going to eat meat, that maybe one of you would raise that meat, and then there would be sort of a collective butchering of it or or whatever. So although there's just a massive rise in veganism and non-meat eating as we go into the future, it's for those, there just will be this, like you're saying, much more idea of, of collective ways of doing that. But I think in some ways it's the demise of the supermarket over time. And the rise of just generally, we've gone from this massive, this idea that we want to be global and we're going much, much more local. Everybody's world is closing into a smaller world, whether that is, you know, it's gone from country to to town, to village, to street, to, you know, your people. And I think that's what we're doing. I think we're expanding now. I think we're closing down for bad and good. And I mean, I think Europe was a brilliant example of, uh, you know, for Britain, you know, there was this big thing, of course, of Brexit and being separate. And we started to have this feeling from living in the UK that, that Europe was now against us and they were one, they were, they were there all together. And there was a big conversation for them to communicate that to Britain saying, we're all together and now you're going to be on your own. And then as soon as COVID happened, they all shut their borders to each other. Mm-hmm. Ah, <laughs> that was really interesting. So I thought you were one. 
So what happened to being one? And I just think, I don't know why that, that is so striking about how, how global are we? How open are we when it really comes to it? that people are surviving, finding survival mechanisms within their own hub, whatever that hub is. And I just think we're going to see that more and more in this idea of survival. It's that we understand that no amount of money during COVID could have helped people buy the things that they wanted, whether that was toilet roll or, you know, whatever it was when there was a shortage of flour or, you know, whatever it was in the US, there's been lots of shortages. No amount of money would help that. But if you had the network, the impossible network, <laughs> then perhaps, you know, that would have given you the access to what you need. And I think that's where we're going. Okay. You actually contracted and we suffered with COVID and got the virus. How bad were you, badly were you hit? Yeah. I mean, um, I, I had it in March and I didn't have a fever and I didn't have a cough. And at that point they were the two symptoms. So I I was around lots of other people who also didn't have a fever and didn't have a cough. Over, I think, over almost 60 people now I know has had it. Most recovered in a couple of days, but I didn't. And I, my breathing got worse and worse. I was really struggling for breath by about day 10, which apparently is the critical day. I was very afraid. And I did call my friend who worked in the ICU in the hospital. And it was very early on and there were just, there was no possibility. She said, don't come here because there's no beds. There's no space. It was really frightening. And I struggled with my breathing for, it, that was definitely the worst, but it was it very slowly, very, very slowly got better over about a month. But I lost my taste and smell at that point. I'm now almost 11 weeks and I still don't have my taste and smell. I have started to get the odd moment, but when I, actually the, the doctor did speak to the ENT clinic, the ear, nose and throat people, and they said, we don't know what to advise really. You know, maybe take some vitamin A and do the, the sort of the smell training, which is kind of put some stuff under your nose and sniff and then hope it comes back. And for your trade as a food futurologist, that's devastating. Devastating. Absolutely devastating. It's uh, smell for me actually is, is what I would call my superpower. And I have a, I've had a nose like a dog and I've been able to smell everything. Really, I mean, everything. It's been the way I've navigated myself through the world. And I just hope that it will come back eventually. There's nothing more I can do. And how are you, um, are you looking to alternative remedies for this? Having spoken to different people who've had some of this, you know, you hear someone said, take alpha lipoic acid. So I've been taking that. You know, someone take, take zinc, I've got some zinc. You know, it's been like that, just throwing everything at it. But I actually think the, the truth is it's time. Uh, can take a year. If it, if it comes back in a year, then almost happy days because it's going to come back 100%. I guess my fear is that it doesn't come back 100%. Okay. The um, irony, the irony is I did a TED talk on smell a few years ago. So what principles do you stand by? Oh, try and be your word. Try and be my word. If I say I'm going to do it, do it. Mm-hmm. Try and do that. So whatever I say, I try to stand by that. So... I think that everyone is on their own journey and that's pretty much it. Okay. What hard choices have you had to make that were tough at the time, but did turn out to be the right decision? Well, that's the journey, that's the journey, isn't it? So yeah, I wish, I wish it had been someone else's journey. I want someone <laughs> else's journey. <laughs> As a futurologist, where'd you go to discover new ideas? Oh gosh, I'm inspired by lots of things. So just going to other countries, public transport, TV ads in other countries. I like to go to different food shows, especially fancy food in the US, which I come to every year. I'm interested in other sorts of things that maybe aren't related to food at all. The New Yorker is great, actually, really inspirational. So I'm, I always read the New Yorker. I, I try to read the New Yorker. It comes too quickly. And the internet, looking at things. I get tip-offs from people. I think I'm interested in lots of little things because I'm trying to pick up ideas. The difficulty is always that feeling of Sunday night when you haven't done your homework for Monday morning. I always feel like I'm on the back foot and I'm missing something. So massive FOMO issues. What's the one problem worth solving? One problem worth solving. I think the food. If you sort out the food supply chain, sort out food, everybody gets the best quality and understands health and wellness from a, a food 
and well-being perspective, if you can get people to really understand that what they eat and how that impacts on a whole society and a whole culture is what the governments are allowing people to eat, it would change the world. Who's made you reevaluate yourself? My partner, definitely. He, yes, what I thought I would like to be or who I was, he definitely took the veil of that illusion away from me. And it always calls me, again, formerly known as the artist. So I think that he's, he's very good at seeing who I am better than I am. He's made me reevaluate that. We all need one of those. Reality check. It hurts, but it's good. <laughs> Impossible question. What would your advice be to someone that's about to graduate or go to study that's being told their, their dream, their goal, their grand ambition is impossible? Oh gosh, yeah. Don't listen to that for one minute. I think follow absolutely the best thing that people can do in their lifetime is follow their absolute passions, their dreams and what they love more than anything else, because there's no guarantee with anything. And and if you don't love it, how can you how can you really give yourself to it? I think that you have to trust your trust your intuition. We're not taught intuition and we're not taught to really feel. And that is key. Good answer. What's your go-to karaoke song? Probably either Nine to Five or Islands in the Stream. Dolly Parton. Ah, right. <laughs> one day, one day. Best Netflix, Amazon or streaming series you've seen during the lockdown? I really loved Unorthodox, which was the, I don't know how many part documents, a series yeah. about a Hasidic Jewish community in New York. And a true story of a woman who left them. I thought that was really great. It's very good. Uh, what book would you want us to offer listeners that submit the best comments in Instagram or on the website? Oh, actually, there is there's a quite a good book for the US called Rich Food, Poor Food. And I think that could be quite good. It's it's quite simple, but it it does show the tricks of what's people are doing in your food. And there's also another really great book. Oh gosh, there's a really, fu- there's a great book by a, a comedian called Food, A Love Story. And that's Jim Gaffigan, which is really funny. Great. And there's a really good book called A Good Life by Leo Hickman. And that's about food and environment and the way you live. Okay. I think that would be informative for people in terms of holistic view of food and how they live in that. And our final question is, who should we interview next? Okay. You should interview Amanda Hamilton. She is a nutritionist. She's a TV kind of quite well known in the UK. She's written a lot of books and she's had quite an unusual life. She's Scottish. She lives part of the time in Scotland. Um, I don't know how much she'll tell you about her um, different lives, how much she'll reveal, but it's pretty wild. Okay. So I think I think she'd be good. And the question that people don't ask me that I wish they would ask me is something that's not to do with my job and not to, just something that's so random and weird that's completely out of the blue that would make me laugh. Okay. How do you manage to sort of keep your hair in that condition during a lockdown? <laughs> um, well, my hair naturally stands up. So there's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> um, as you can see, it's pretty wild. So all I can do is tame it by going like that, that is the, I wake up and it's, you know, and so if it was all long, it's basically that, I think it's buckwheat. I think it was a character that was like that. So um, literally it looks like wheat. So, so yeah, and I can just cut the size myself. What do you think about, I mean, education's an important part of reorientating society and it's with school. I mean, if you were able to make changes to the education system to help future generations to live more sustainably and to eat healthier, what would you start with? So from the beginning, they'd come into school, they'd take off their shoes and they'd wear slippers. And they do that because they, it takes away some kind of power and aggression to, is taken away straight away and start to think about how they can be with each other. There would be some meditation time. There would be some conversations about about just exploring tastes and exploring the senses to think about listening, think about seeing, think about touching and just some explorative thinking. 
without anything being results based or exam based. In fact, I would I would probably follow that Swedish or Finnish system where they don't even start learning to read till they're eleven. Interesting. So um, I think just just get into the feeling and the um, the connecting. You've um, created your own brand of superfood. Mm. Where did that come from? Yeah, in two thousand and one, actually, I ended up being in pa- uh, part of nine eleven. I was only visiting New York, been there a couple of weeks, and it made me very unwell. And I ended up randomly going to a place in Puerto Rico. I was actually working on a film at the time. And I got unwell and I got taken to this retreat place. And it taught me a lot about what I could eat to make myself better. But it took a long time to make all that stuff. So I put some ideas together where I could make all that stuff, but really quickly, because I thought that was what people, people haven't got time to create these long-winded health solutions. So to make it quick. So I made it quick for myself. And then I started giving it to other people, showing other people how to make it for themselves. But they, I guess the investment was too big for them to make it for themselves because of too many ingredients. Even though it was quick, it was a big outlay at the beginning. And so over the years of giving it away, and then I ended up in the relationship I'm in now, and uh, he started drinking it for breakfast with me. And he really noticed massive changes and quite a bit of weight loss. And he said, you should be selling this. And I said, I'm not really interested in doing anything like that. A bit, we could go back to the chocolate thing, really. It's just more future ideas that I'm an idea person. And if someone was there with unlimited cash could turn those ideas into money, then that would be a really great combination. So he, um, we made the first bag and we put it on the internet and someone found it and bought it. It was amazing. <laughs> like, Whoa, we sold a bag. And if people want to check it out, where do they find it? Yeah, it is edible-love.com. Great name. Edible-love.com. So it's edible love. But if you actually put edible love in a search bar, food is not what comes up, I'm told. So so edible-love.com must be there. Otherwise, it's something other. We'll put a link in the show notes. But you still produce that? You still, um, still- yeah. We have we have eight products now, uh, based on what people ask for. So they want something hot, they want something this, they want something to travel with that's easier. And so we ship all over the world. And really, we're running it probably. Uh, it's more like a love project. Both of us are busy with our other jobs, and this is just what we've been able to continue. We get still get really lovely messages from people and we've had people buying it since the beginning, still doing sort of bulk orders. And yeah, it's been great. We had some such amazing feedback with people coming off long-term medication, blood pressure medication, you know, joint problems, depending on what they take, but they've, they've really found some of it to be super helpful. The fact that your mother was a butcher, how much did that contribute to you becoming vegan? Probably quite a lot. Probably quite a lot, only because we had an, meat wasn't something that was seen as a luxury. It was seen as an abundance, mm. and I just wanted a salad. I just that was a, that for me was a luxury. My mum hates vegetables; has never eaten one yet, and just it was just a real it was a real slog to try and get. I really wanted a salad, and it, that was the luxury. So I suppose it's like kids always are rebelling. You know, I could do anything I wanted, but I ended up wanting to go to school. I could eat as much meat as I wanted, but all I wanted was a salad. And I think it's probably just a massive rebellion. And also I used to cry at Tom and Jerry. So you must be fascinated when you see, I mean, they're all, obviously there are these fads, whether it's paleo or whether it's keto diets or whether it's the, the plant-based diet, you know, this, or, or the more recent that documentary, I don't know if you've seen the one about the sportsman. Um, you remember what it was called, Bettina? Came out. The, the documentary? Yeah. Sports people on a plant-based diet. Oh yes, with with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, so all these things that you must see as these fads. I mean, obviously there are people that see great results on paleo, on keto, or if you oh, look yeah. at someone like um, Jordan Peterson who only eats meat, which is bizarre. I mean, what's what's your perspective on on the diversity of diets? It's a bit going, it's going back to, I guess, my ethos is that people are where they're at and there's nothing you're going to do to be able to, to change people's belief system, really, in that moment. People need to find their own way to things. So yeah, what I think about those diets is that we all really do have very different DNA and what works for one people definitely doesn't work for another. So 
yeah, we've got to eat really, what we'll really understand about diets is that what our ancestors ate, we are really tuned into that. So if you're Japanese and you are, you know, you're fifth generation Japanese, whatever that, that cultural food is, it's going to be great for you. And I think it's very different for each culture and for each genetics. And you know, mine are very mixed. So it depends on how do you figure that out? So I think different foods for different people and Oh, you know, the, the people eating one type of food, um, I don't know. I, I guess I, you know, I think long-term that sort of limitation will have an effect long-term, but most people, most people with diets are not interested in long-term. They're look, looking at short-term solutions. That's most diets. Make me feel good. Make me feel good now. And that's, that's really what our whole world's been built on. It's give me the food now, give me the, the hit now, give me the experience now. You know, we, we're not built for that waiting for that satiating mm-hmm. moment. Okay, right. Well, you got your family thing started. I'll just wrap it up. So just thank you very much for your time. And um, I suppose I acknowledge you for your artistry, your insatiable curiosity about the world, uh, views through the lens of food and for your your vision and your senses, which seem to be attuned. Uh, not right now, though. So not, right no, now. No, not one of them. But yeah, I'm sure they'll all come back and look forward to seeing what you your predictions and your, your forecasts are over the, coming, over the coming years. Yeah, I've just written a synopsis for the book, which is 2022 to 2050. Uh, wow. 2030, sorry. 2050, my goodness. So basically really honing in on what that new future landscape is because by the time people read it, it will be 2022. So um, I've got some quite clear ideas about where we're going to be going and what that new future is. But I would definitely say to people, every single thing that you've been told up until now, I would probably ignore that because the future is so different and super exciting. And it's, we're really going to understand the power of the human mind and the mind-body connection is going to play out in ways that that we could only dream of before. And that is the future. It's exciting. It's a great way to wrap up. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKayley and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.